Hello, Rooted. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am excited that you're interested enough in the Word of God to take about 30 minutes out of your day and just focus on some things that we are learning in the book of 1 Corinthians. I don't know about you, but every time I study a book in the Word of God, I am learning new stuff. It is an inexhaustible book, and uh, I hope that you will learn things as well, too. Now, we have been talking about spiritual gifts, and I know that it is a controversial topic. A lot of people have a lot of different opinions about these things. And I am, of course, teaching some things that are my opinion. I believe I have Bible to back them up, and I can show you these things. But I will always, always remind you, never take what you hear from any Bible teacher at face value without you studying the Word of God first. And after you hear it, be like the Bereans in the book of Acts and search the scriptures to see if these things be so. Because we are fallible men and we do not know everything. And though even though we act like we do, we do not. And we are not always right. And so if you find some error or some new light, please share it with me. I, you will not offend me. I, uh, and if you do, that's my fault. Uh, I should not respond that way to correction. So if you see something or you disagree or want clarification, please let me know. I'm glad to talk to you about it. I believe that Christians who have common denominator truth in their life, we believe that Jesus is God. He came to earth to die for the punishment of our sins, took it on himself, and his substitutionary death on the cross forgave our sins, and his resurrection defeated death, and now he lives on high and works for us and is coming back to get us those common denominator truths and our faith in those truths can help us gather together. And these are peripheral issues. And so if you disagree with me about spiritual gifts, it's okay to disagree. You can be wrong. When we get to heaven, I promise I won't rub it in. I'm just teasing a little bit because I know there will be lots of things I'm wrong about when I get to heaven I'll understand too. And uh, But always remember that whatever we believe, we at least ought to have some Bible to base it on. And then when we realize that we're outside the realm of Bible and we're in the realm of, of, of speculation and opinion, we recognize it as such. And I'm willing to live and die based upon the principles in the Word of God. But I'm not always willing to live and die based upon the application of those principles in their nth degree, way out here on the peripherals. So I'm not always willing to die on those hills, all right, because we're going to disagree, agree to disagree on some of those things. So um, as we have been discussing, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are the fundamental chapters in dealing with the, the enemy of the abuse of of spiritual gifts. And realize that when Paul writes 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, he is dealing with the abuse of things. And if you want to know more about the spiritual gifts, of course, you can read that in the book of Romans as well. Um, and uh, look at those things some on your own. Now, I want to talk just a little bit today about how 1 Corinthians 13 fits between 12 and 14. And then I want to take uh, some time, and I probably will not be able to finish it in one class some time to directly look at speaking in tongues as this particular spiritual gift, because there's lots of spiritual gifts, but this particular one in detail, all right? But the significance of chapter 13 is that is known as the great love chapter of the Bible, all right? It's one of the definitive chapters on love in the Bible, and it often gets quoted as a standalone chapter. And I would just remind you, it's not chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and it's not chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 13, and it comes between 12 and 14. Write that down if you didn't know that. That's great Bible truth. 
13 comes between 12 and 14. So we have to read it in the context of what he's saying to really understand. Now, there are truths in 1 Corinthians 13 that transcend the context. I get all of that. But to get the primary application of what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13, you've got to read 12 and 14. All right? They go together. In 12, Paul is given the, the picture of the body of Christ and the unity that should come and that the exercise of spiritual gifts should always lead us to the unity of the body, not the disunity. If it leads to disunity, there are two possibilities. Number one, it's not a true spiritual gift. Or number two, it is a spiritual gift that is being abused. And so Paul gives us these things. And then he ends chapter 12 with these words. Covet or desire strongly the best gifts. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way, a better way. Right? And then it leads right into chapter 13. Now please remember, the chapter divisions were created by man. They are not inspired. All right? To help us find our place in the scriptures, all right? Because without verse notations and chapter divisions, it would be hard to find our place. One of the things you find will help you in your Bible study is get a Bible that, uh, that denotes the paragraph shifts in the scripture. Because sometimes the chapter changes, but the paragraph does not. And sometimes the paragraph changes and you're still in the same chapter. And you don't always understand that the thought has shifted and helped you a little bit in your Bible study. But chapter 13 goes right after chapter 12 and it's one continuous flow. Paul says, covet earnestly the best gifts and I'll show you a better way, a more excellent way. More excellent than what? If you look at the context, he has a list. Of spiritual gifts are all apostles or all prophets or all teachers or all workers of miracles have all the gifts of healings do all speak with tongues do all interpret and of course these are rhetorical questions and the answer to all those questions is no not everybody's an apostle not everybody's a prophet not everybody's a teacher not everybody's a worker of miracles not everybody has the gift of healings not everybody can speak in tongues and not everybody can interpret so therefore if you're desiring a gift desire the best one and the best one is the exercise, not the gift of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is, is demonstrated for us in this chapter on 13 on love itself. And when I'm exercising and showing Calvary love to someone, that is the greatest gift that I can ever show. It's greater than speaking in tongues. It's greater than if you could raise somebody from the dead or heal them. It is greater than being able to prophesy. It's greater than even being an apostle, showing the love of Christ, which makes it a gift that any Christian, any Christian can exercise, any Christian. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about a translation issue, okay? I use the King James Bible. And I do so for a multitude of reasons. But the main reason, I'm just going to be honest with you, is because I've been around it my entire life. I'm most comfortable in the King James. I believe it is the closest to the original. And in English, it's, it's God's word for English-speaking people. I don't have any issues with it. I'm not saying it is the only version for English-speaking people. We can talk about that some other time. And if you turn me off with that, then go ahead and turn me off. All right? That's fine. You're living in a little bubble all by yourself. Have a good time. All right. So... Sorry, I didn't mean that in a condescending way. But I, I just use it. I believe it's God's word. I can trust it. I don't have any issues with it. All right. But sometimes, because the King James Version is 400 years old and language changes way more rapidly than that, 
Some words carry a different meaning than they used to. And the King James has many words like that. Not only does the King James have words that have changed in meaning, but there are words in the King James that have changed that you're not aware that they have changed in the sense that the King James is writing one thing and meaning one thing, the translators were, and you're taking it as something else entirely because it means something in your day. It's not necessarily wrong in the translation, but it is wrong that you can take it in a way that they did not intend. So you've got to read the context and study these things out. And one of the things, one of the words of the King James translators used in 1 Corinthians 13 for love is charity. In fact, the way I grew up, charity suffered long. Verse 4, charity is kind. Charity endeth not. Charity brought not itself is not puffed up. If you went to a Christian school, you learned this chapter and you said charity, okay? Because there are different degrees of love in the Greek language. Agape being the supreme sacrificial love of God. And that is the word that is used here. It's not friendship love. It's not family love. It's not um, uh, any kind of attraction love like uh, eros. It's not any of that. It is the supreme love. And so the King James translators use the word charity to differentiate it from the other loves that were commonly used in the scripture to some degree. All right. But here's the problem that we have. When you and I say charity, we don't think about love. We think about donations. That's what we think about. Giving, charity, dropping money in the red box, dropping off stuff at the thrift store, giving to those in need. In fact, Paul makes this statement. He said, if I bestow all my goods, in verse 3, to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profit me nothing. To us, bestowing all my goods to feed the poor is charity, right? Because that's because the word has changed, all right? So when you approach this, you can just replace charity with love. And you're not doing any violence to the scripture as long as you understand it's talking about the supreme love of God for us. And if you think I'm correcting the Bible or something that way, please just give me a little grace and understand. Just trying to, 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 to make sure that we interpret it the way that the original writer and the Holy Spirit desired for it to be interpreted. So Paul says he wants to give us a more excellent way. How do we know what this excellent way is? Well, if you look in verse, verse 12, I'm in, I'm in verse 11, he says, after talking about love, he said, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. All right? What are childish things? Childish things are unloving things. All right? Paul says, you show Christian maturity not because you have these sign gifts in demonstration, but because you act in love when you have reasons not to act in love. To act outside of love is to be immature. It is to be childish, childish. And I'll be candid with you. If that is the standard, if every time I'm unloving, I'm childish, first of all, you're looking at a very childish individual. And our churches are full of people who are childish. Childish, yeah. And Paul says that the mature thing to do is to act in love. That is the pinnacle for which we should reach. Not the pinnacle of speaking in tongues, healing people, laying on of hands in the sense of being able to pass power on, working some kind of miracle, or even being a preacher or a teacher. First of all, the goal which would to which we should be striving is to be mature Christians, and mature Christians exercise their life in the love of God. It is the primary fruit of the Spirit 
Not fruits, one fruit, love, out of which all the others flow. And we talked about that last time we were together. Now, please understand that as we read 1 Corinthians, that 1 Corinthians is a response written by Paul to the problems that the church at Corinth was experiencing. And Paul addresses each one of these throughout the chapters. In fact, there are seven or eight enemies of the church. And this is one of the enemy of the abuse of spiritual gifts that we're talking about now. And in every one of those, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in divisions in the church, fighting against worldly wisdom, all those that we have discussed, every one of them brings it back to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Who is the boss in your life? Who is the boss in your marriage? And we keep the lordship of Christ right. We don't create divisions. We act right in our marriage. We don't abuse the Lord's table. We don't abuse spiritual gifts. And it is the lordship. And love, true love, is the outgrowth of the right relationship to the lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. In fact, if you do not have the lordship of Christ in your life, your love is an empty love. And you cannot separate chapter 13 from the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. And the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians emphasizes the lordship of Jesus. All right? So, Brother Dusty, how do I begin to love and exercise this spiritual gift? The first thing you do, yield your life to God. Let him be the boss. And let the Holy Spirit have full free reign in your life. And he'll begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit and through his strength, you will find the ability to love those who do not deserve it and to respond in meekness and kindness when you have every justification to respond otherwise. May I just remind you, love suffers long and is kind. I get to do a lot of weddings, and um, one of the things I always try to emphasize, and it's not original with me, of course, it's in the scripture, but I heard another preacher do it, and I stole it because that's what we do, right? If you're alive, plagiarize. That's the motto by which I live. Teasing. So, but people always talk about the bride and the groom, how they love each other. They love each other. Well, the Bible says love is patient and love is kind. Do you know what I'm really loving my spouse? Not in the euphoria of the wedding. Weddings are beautiful, but marriages take work, right? How do I know what I'm really loving my wife when I'm patient? Why would I have to be patient? Because she's getting on my nerves. That's why. I'm irritated, but I choose to be patient. Love is kind. I could act selfishly, but I'm going to choose to act kindly. That's love. That's maturity. That's what it's all about. Sometimes the movie version of love, that's cheap love. That's easy love, carried away by the hormones or the feelings of the moment. But real love is in the routine struggle of everyday life and is choosing to temper my words, to be a servant to my wife, to love her like Christ loved the church, to put her wants before my own, to lay down my life for her, and to be patient and kind. It's true about my kids, too. And I know that most of them do not watch these videos. They've listened to me now for most of their lives. Why would they voluntarily do it later on? But I should apologize to them because I said I loved them, but I was not always patient. I was not always kind. I was not always long-suffering. I acted proud, got easily provoked, thought evil. Yeah. Didn't really love them, not with the love of God. May God lead us forward in these things. Now, let me just touch on a couple other things I want to deal with in 1 Corinthians 13, then we'll back out and get a bigger picture. All right. At the end of it, Paul makes this statement, 13, 13, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity, or the greatest of these is love. All 
my life, I thought, well, the reason why love is greater than faith and hope is because faith one day will turn to sight. And hope will one day turn to fulfillment. And if hope turns to fulfillment and faith turns to sight, love continues. And so, therefore, love is the greatest. But I was wrong in that. All right? I was wrong in that. Because it says in verse 13 that all three of them abide. It doesn't say faith goes away. It says faith abides. It doesn't say hope goes away. It says hope abides. And it says love abides. And the greatest of those that abide are love. So you can't say that faith ends because it doesn't. That hope ends because it doesn't. All right? Say, Brother Dusty, what do you mean faith doesn't end? When I get to heaven, it won't be faith anymore. It'll be sight. That's because you are looking at Christ as something that you can understand in one moment. But the inexhaustible nature of Jesus Christ determines and demands that you will always be exercising faith as you learn and grow in your development and your relationship with him. Don't think when you get to heaven that you'll be full and complete in all your knowledge of God and Christ. It's inexhaustible. It's inexhaustible. Just because you've waded out on the Pacific Ocean to a spot over your head doesn't mean that you've plumbed the depths of the Mariana Trench. All right? You have not. And when you see God for the first time, when you enter into the relationship with Christ and he asks for us in heaven, it is inexhaustible. And you will always be exercising that faith of trust and confidence in him. Hope goes the same way. You will be exercising hope as heaven gets better and better. See, we used to look at heaven in this context. I get to heaven. It's like this. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. No. Heaven is like this. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It gets better. And when you've been there 10,000 years, it will be better than it was when you were there the first day. Absolutely. Because of hope and faith. And when you've been there a million years, it'll be so much better than it was in the 10,000th year that there'll be no comparison between those things. And really no way to measure how long you've been there anyway because time is not an element anymore. But Jesus Christ and in his inexhaustible nature determines for us that faith and hope abide. They do abide. But love is the greatest. Why is love the greatest? Well, I think that's illustrated for us in verse 7. It says that faith, I mean that love believes all things and hopes all things. All right? Love is the greatest because it is the source of the other two. Love does the other two. Love always has faith. Love always has hope. It is the growth of those other two things. And if love abides, by very definition, faith must abide. And hope must abide because love believes all things and love hopes all things. Now, I'm going to look at my time. All right, I, I don't know how much I'll get into the overall view, but I promise we're going to back up and get it. And uh, so I, I want you to – I'll give you some passages to look at and read over before we come back next time. And that one will take the whole time and talk about just speaking in tongues because I've still got some more things I want to say about 1 Corinthians 13. So 1 Corinthians 13 is the kind of the quintessential place that people go on, on love. But it's not the final word on love. 1 John chapter 4 is the other one, right? And we know that 1 John chapter 4 is a great chapter on love because in chapter 8, I mean, chapter 4, verse 8 and 16, two times it says God is love. Okay, anytime the word is is used in that context, it has the equivalent of equals. God equals love. It's, it's an element of his essence. God is light. He is holy. He is pure. That's his essence. God is love. You and I can't, I can't say dusty is love. It's not my essence. Dusty has love. 
That's possible, all right? It's an additional thing added to me by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But I can never say I am love personified. Christ is, all right? God is love. He is love. Twice it says that. John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16. It's easy to remember that because 4 times 2 is 8 times 2 is 16. So you remember that content verse that way. 1 John 4, 8 and 16. And so if God is love and Christ is God, then what's true of love is true of Christ. All right? That's not a difficult a step to make. All right? So look at it with me this way. If love suffers long and is kind, love envies not, love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, love does not behave itself unseemly, love does not seek her own, love is not easily provoked, love thinks no evil, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things, love never fails, then it's all true of Christ as well, all right? See if these are true. Jesus suffers long. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Christ does not vaunt himself. He's not puffed up. Christ does not behave himself unseemly. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not easily provoked. Jesus thinks no evil. Jesus rejoices not in iniquity. Jesus rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus never fails. I don't know about you, but that is an awesome thing to think about. That the one who governs, who is our king, that demands our loyalty, demands that he be our Lord to rule and reign over us, is kind and gentle and long-suffering. He's not proud. He doesn't act in unappropriate ways. He doesn't seek his own good. He seeks our good. It takes a long time to provoke him. He doesn't think evil about us, but he thinks good thoughts about us. He bears all of our iniquities. He believes good things about us and positive things. He believes those things. He hopes for us, and he endures it, and he never, ever fails. How can you not submit to a king like that? The only reason you would not submit to a king like that is you forgot how sorry the king you're currently serving is. Because the way of the transgressor is hard. Because Satan is the exact opposite of all those things. He is impatient. He is aggravating. He envies. His pride destroys him. He seeks to believe the worst about you. To destroy your life. To rob you of things. He doesn't believe you or hope with you or bear with you or endure anything. He just wants to steal from you. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the king you're currently serving. But switch over to the other king. He's kind and loving. Hey, you got to serve a king. Serve the one who is patient and kind, who is just love personified. God is love. Jesus is God. So Jesus is love. And these things are true of Jesus. Now, you want to be convicted? You're supposed to be like Jesus. So put your name everywhere the word love or charity appears. I'm going to read it with mine. You read it silently with your name. Dusty suffers long and is kind. Dusty envies not. Dusty vaunteth not himself, is not puffed up. Dusty does not behave himself unseemly. Dusty does not seek his own. Dusty is not easily provoked. Dusty thinks no evil. Dusty does not rejoice in iniquity, but Dusty rejoices in the truth. Dusty bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Dusty never fails. Now you know that that is a lie. Because I'm not where I need to be. Anytime you feel proud about your spiritual growth, 
and the heights of spirituality that you have reached. Go back and read this passage and put your name in there and realize how far you have to go. And understand the goal is not just being better than what you were or better than your brother. The goal is to be like Christ. Now don't be discouraged. He'll make you into all of these things. He is currently doing it through his strength, not through your strength. Take your eyes off of yourself and look to Jesus and allow him to do these things in your life. And allow this passage of scripture to humble you. Because anytime you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in due time. And so put yourself down at your place in humility before Jesus the Lord and recognize him as the standard. And don't seek for the exercise of just outward spiritual sensational sign gifts. Seek to exercise the fruit of the Spirit in loving like Jesus loves. That is a goal worth attaining. That is the more excellent way that Paul is talking about. All right, now, normally by my class time, I have four minutes left to talk and uh, about getting in speaking in tongues. But I'm going to touch on it just a little bit, and then I'm going to share some things with you about what you need to do to prepare for next time we're together. So I, I grew up around people who believed in speaking in tongues. Not that my dad did, but there are people in and out of my life who practiced it and learned some things, and I grew in some things, and then I, I, I studied a little bit. And I want you to know that lots of times, and I, please forgive me, I'm speaking in general terms, not everybody who practices speaking in tongues is like this. This is just my limited experience. But lots of times people who do believe in speaking in tongues make it the litmus test for spirituality. They do. They make it like you, you've got to do this. This is, you know, this is how you know you're filled with the Spirit. This is how you know these things. And that is just not always the case. And I want to remind you that if speaking in tongues was so important, there would be more of it in Scripture. But in reality, there are only three places in the Bible where someone is speaking in tongues. Three. They're all in the book of Acts. All right? All in the book of Acts. There are only two other books of the Bible that deal with speaking in tongues specifically. All right? Romans doesn't mention it when they talk about spiritual gifts. It's only mentioned two other places. It's mentioned in Mark 16. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. That's the only places it's mentioned, all right? And then it's demonstrated for us in three places in the book of Acts. Did I put that here on the board? Yes, Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19, all right? Here's your homework. Go read those chapters, okay? The first one is Pentecost. Peter spoke in tongues, known language, all right? Acts chapter 10, Cornelius the, is centurion in the Italian band, the army, all right? So he spoke in tongues, okay? Easy to demonstrate, known language. Chapter 19, Paul meets this group of individuals who are preaching John's gospel and they don't know anything about the Holy Ghost. He puts his hands on them. They speak in tongues, all right? There is a consistency in all three of these, all right? And all three of them, it is a sign to unbelieving Jews when they speak in tongues, okay? Go read them, please, all right? Because I'm going to demonstrate it to you. And then I want you to get in Mark chapter 16. You can understand that there are some sign gifts where 17 says, chapter 16, verse 17. Did I put that up there? Yes, I got it all for you. All right? 16, 17. Sometimes I, I really do what I'm supposed to do, and, and I surprise myself. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. They shall drink any deadly thing and will not hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. All right? These signs. 
here's what I want you to get. We're going to discuss it in more detail next time we're together. All right? There are five gifts that follow the demonstration. Five signed gifts. Not one. Five. Okay? And the apostles demonstrated all five in varying degrees. All five. All right? If you're going to practice the sign gifts, there are five sign gifts. All right? So if you speak in tongues, please pick up snakes, drink poison, heal the sick, cast out devils. You ought to be able to do all of them. All right? And so these are the five sign gifts. And we see them illustrated in the book of Acts. What is the book of Acts? And this is a key thing. The book of Acts is a transition book. Okay? It is a transition of the early church going from the apostles to the growth of being able to stand on its feet. The book of Acts is a transition book. Anytime you see a transition book in the Bible, it is full of miracles because God is confirming the transition. Where else do we find transition books in the Bible? The book of Joshua, transitioning from the wandering in the wilderness to the possession of the promised land. A book full of miracles. It's indicative of a transition book. But as the transition book gets settled, as the growth continues, the transition ceases You'll see a decline in the miracles. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you categorically that I believe that the sign gifts were given for a limited time for the church to get on its feet. They were the training wheels as the church was taken off, right? And as the church got its footing, the word of God was completed in time. That which is perfect is come. Not just the word of God, but the maturity of the church. The sign gifts kind of fell off and were no longer necessary. That's why in the book of Acts, Paul heals people who were sick. And later in the book of Acts and other places, he says he left uh, Epaphras, I think, at home because he was sick. Well, why didn't Paul just heal him? Because the sign gifts had been in decline. And as the church grew, the sign gifts fell apart. Fell, not fell apart, but, but drifted into God not doing it as often. Now, can God still cause people to speak in tongues? Raise the dead, heal the sick, let you pick up a snake, drink poison. Absolutely, he's God. He can do anything he wants, all right? I'm just saying that it is the exception now, not the rule, not the rule. It was the rule during the apostolic days in the book of Acts. And I'm going to take you through chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 next time we're together and show you why I believe that. You may disagree with me. I still love you, all right? And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is, a, this is not a common denominator truth. All right? This is something we can agree to disagree on. But I want to show you why in the Bible why I feel the way I do. Why I believe that speaking in tongues is not necessary today as an example of being filled with the Spirit. But that the fruit of the Spirit is. And that is love expressed as in 1 Corinthians 13. And if you want to disagree with me, feel free to do so. We'll have a good discussion about it. And hopefully both of us will grow in the Lord. Because I don't know about you, but I want to be more like Jesus. I do. I want to grow. And I want to understand what God's Word teaches us. All right, so go home and read Mark chapter 16, 17 through 19. Read those verses. Read Acts chapter 2, chapter 10, and chapter 19. Only three times in the Bible where somebody's speaking in tongues. And then go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And read those three in one sitting so that you can understand what Paul is talking about. And remember that 1 Corinthians took place during the period of the book of Acts, during the transition period. It didn't come afterward. It's going on during that time frame. And so when you understand that, it gives us some insight on these things. All right? So here's what you can do for me. First of all, thank you so much for watching. If you have a comment and helped you in any way, please let me know that. It encourages me to hear from you. And then do the easiest thing possible to spread the gospel. Click share. Thank you so much. This is Pastor Dusty Brackett. I'm executive pastor at Liberty Church in York, South Carolina. And you have been watching Rooted. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a good day.